Grab your Bibles, grab your loved ones, anything else that you value. And we do need to get started. I know everybody is still a little uh, uh, tired. So, oh, I did, I hung over. I wouldn't have said that, but okay, okay. So, and I'll be honest, I'm the person who should be least tired. Everybody does all the work. I get up here and I just sit there and say, welcome to Christ Pres, you know, and and all that. And everybody comes to me and says, oh, the meals were great. Oh, this fi- the fire fellowship, the fire pit fellowship was great. Oh, the, and I'm like, I didn't do anything. No, it's true. Everybody did everything here. So, yeah. I don't know, Mr. State of Clerk of the Presbytery, what was our attendance yesterday, roughly? I mean, it was pretty much a full house, right? About 65 presbyters and some family members. And so it would have been about, probably about 75 to 78. Okay. All right, guys, well, let's gather around. Um, I'm sure folks will trickle in. And we'll go ahead and get started. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you that Presbytery went well yesterday and Friday. We're thankful for the very many people who did so much with logistics and with uh, food and with uh, setup and so many other aspects of making sure that things ran well. We do pray that uh, you will bless the efforts of the Presbytery, the decisions that they made and the things on which they deliberated would all be... um, used of you to advance your kingdom, to advance the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of our people, and increasingly in the lives of the people around us in this world. Father, to that end, as we turn now to our Sunday school class, we thank you that you have given us teachers over the centuries uh, who can um, uh, unpack the Word of God and who can write it down, and now we can read and we can learn what they have written. We can benefit from their wisdom and from their study and their training. As we turn to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we pray, Lord, that we would uh, avail ourselves of the wisdom of the ages as these men have interpreted what the Scripture says and left it to us so that we can profit from it and not have to start from scratch. And we pray, Lord, that this study would be a great blessing to us, that it might grow us in our knowledge of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, but more importantly, that it would not just be knowledge, but it would increase our love for you our obedience for you, and our love and our service to those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, who alone makes it possible. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, um, as we said last week, we are starting a new study, kind of a back-to-basics sort of thing, um, looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And every week we're going to be looking at one of those questions and working through it. So uh, the easiest thing to do, if you don't yet have the catechism seared into your brain... Um, is to grab a hymnal. You have the hymnals right in front of you, and the hymnal in the back has the shorter catechism. So let me ask you to turn there. I'm going to guess it's around page 849. Somebody check me on that. Uh, I don't have it here in front of me, but... Now, you might have your own little shorter catechism booklet or something of that nature, too, uh, and that would be fine as well. Uh, or electronic or something of that nature. But if somebody's looking in the... 869. Oh, I'm way off. 869. So, yeah. I haven't memorized the Trinity hymnal after 32 years, you would think. <sighs> These pastors who came out of the PCA, what do they know? All right. But we're going to be uh, looking at the catechism in detail, and... Today, after last week, we spent some time talking about the importance of confessions, creeds, and catechisms, the role that they play. And does anybody, can anybody give me a 30-second summary of what we said last week? What is the importance or the reason why we use confessions, creeds, and catechisms? Any takers? And if you weren't here last week, that's fine, too. You can chime in if you've got the right answer. No, uh, Matt, yes, I knew I could count.
Yeah, we gave a number of reasons, and you're summarizing them pretty well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, why reinvent the wheel every time? Why not learn from what others have uh, done before? And so here we have a summary. It's not the entirety of Scripture, but it's a summary of the major tenets. Um, and the Catechism, of course, is put in a format that helps us to uh, learn by question and answer. Uh, the Confession of Faith is a little different, a little more detailed, but each in their own way summarizes the key teachings of Scripture. And we're going to be seeing here, especially on question one, how it helps us to develop a proper Christian worldview. So let's go ahead and take a look at question number one. It's uh, a question that you might even have memorized. But will somebody read for me the question? Not all at once. What is the chief end of man? And I dare say you might have even done that one by memory. There we go. That's right. That's right. Excellent. And the answer, people of God, is, we can all read it together, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Absolutely. And it's a question, uh, an answer, that we probably say most of all when we're using the shorter catechism. Uh, just like in the, the uh, um, equally excellent Heidelberg Catechism, most people will quote the first one. There's a reason why those are the first ones. They're not just simply first because, you know, oh, this got to start somewhere. No, they really do set the stage for everything that comes after. When you think about it, human beings have been asking the question, why am I here? Who am I? Why do I exist? You know, for as long as there have been human beings post-fall, and I'll add that in just a moment and explain why I put it that way. But it's a very typical question. Why am I here? Why do I exist? Some people look and they say, because you were all able to look and see the world. We're able to analyze and, and weigh what we see around us. So what do we see? We see death and destruction, and we see violence, and we see hurt, and we see all those sorts of things. And this is where catechisms really help us because what a lot of folks do is they see all that, but they stop there. They don't avail themselves of God having revealed himself in Scripture. They just look at what's before them, and they say, well, there's obviously no purpose. There's obviously no reason. You just exist, and so you just make the best of what you've got, and then it all comes to an end because all they see is the death and destruction and suffering and everything around us. Even if you do put Scripture in front of them, and of course, getting a little ahead of myself, the Catechism will teach more about this. But even if you put the Scripture in front of them because they've not been converted, they're unable to even uh, understand what they're reading. So going back to what we learned last week, what we begin to see in this first question is the ability to answer the biggest uh, uh, questions of life. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What's the purpose of this existence? <clears throat> properly uh, framed in our catechism is theology enables you to develop a way of looking at the world. We call that a worldview. And it actually can help you to understand properly, to process all the things that you see. Because as believers, the framers of the catechism looked not only at the world around them, but they looked at God's revelation in Scripture. They were able to bring those two together and see how those properly connect and able to come up with answers that make sense of them all. Uh, unbelievers, every single time that an unbeliever develops an answer to the big questions of life, they always fall short in some area. Many don't even get very far. Uh, you see our culture today, and you see that the reason... It's, so let me just make a, a side comment. I hope it's not seen as being offensive. Um, but we got a lot of folks who we might object to certain things, their wokeism or, you know, whatever. And we tend to think of these people as being evil. They may be oftentimes uh, advancing things that are evil, but they themselves don't wake up thinking, I'm going to destroy the world around us. They are, and I'm not saying that, uh, and I'm not arguing about, is man inherently bad and all that. We'll cover that later. I'm just saying their motives when they get up, you know, in the morning, they're not specifically sitting there and saying, I want to destroy America. I want to destroy, you know, churches. Uh, they wake up thinking, how do I make, uh, they look around, they see the world's all messed up, and they say, how do we address that? The problem is that their ability to reason is quite literally only skin deep. <laughs> you know, we, right now we're saying, we're sitting there and saying, 
for some of these folks, racism and, and skin color is all they can see, and that's true. Their reasoning is, is, is extraordinarily shallow. So in one sense, you, you have to understand that they're doing the best they can with what they have. They're making connections that are extraordinarily shallow because they don't see beyond that. They lack the ability to see the depth of the world and of Scripture. If we have that ability, it's not because we're better, it's not because we're smarter or you know, whatever, it's because God has opened our eyes and given us the ability to go much deeper and make connections and everything begins to fall into place. Over the centuries, there's been what we call the virtuous pagan, right? The person who is able to go a little deeper than, than just that kind of surface thing. But even then, when we talk about uh, Plato, right? I forget, oh, you know, Jordan Peterson today, right? Jordan Peterson, he makes sense in some area. Hey, look, he's addressing a lot of this woke stuff, and he's knocking it down and all that. But because they're uh, unbelievers, because they do not have that ability to see everything in total, you will always find that there's one, at least one very significant area in which they just fall short. I always tell people we should study Greek philosophy and things of that nature, but not because we really expect to incorporate into our system or profit, but so that you can see how far human reasoning can go at its very best without revelation. And the one thing you realize is how utterly inadequate it is. Now, I know there'll be some folks who are into philosophy who sit there and say, how can you say that? There's so much to be learned from Descartes. And yeah, we learn that you need the Bible. That's what you really learn. Um, it's also worth studying just because everything that they promote just gets repeated again and again through the centuries. Uh, there's no really new ideas. And it helps you to understand these new ideas. Of, oh, that's, he's just, that's just the utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham, right? I was watching. Uh, did, did you guys know that in the theaters they played Star Trek The Wrath of Khan two weeks ago? It was like one day only. The greatest Star Trek movie ever. I know you all wanted to see it. Uh, you may have had other obligations. But do you remember the famous line that Spock says? What, that, anybody know? Come on. Just, just saying Star Trek Wrath of Khan should immediately tell you what the answer to this is. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It's such a heavy line. And people are like, oh, that's what... Look, that's just utilitarianism from Jeremy Bentham, and it's wrong. It's from the 1700s. It's, yeah. So it helps to understand what the pagans uh, think and come up with because it helps us to understand even things in today. The catechism, though, really begins to give us those answers and really helps us to begin to form that worldview that is able to process all this information to see the weaknesses in thinking, whether it's others thinking or our own thinking, because that is one of the purposes we said last week that catechisms and confessions do. They pull us back into the center. They slough off those crazy ideas that we all have. If we're all left to ourselves, we all come up with some kind of weird theology things, you know, and so these things bring us back. So with that, understanding that we're not just looking at this question and saying, well, it's just one question. It really is beginning to open the door to help us understand a a, uh, a, a holistic, intercoordinated view of everything in the world, we can begin to look at this particular question. So there it is. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so it begins to tell us why we exist. It begins to tell us why we live on this planet. What is the purpose for which we are? And the interesting thing is that the answer is not found in us, but it's located in God. And so we begin to see that man, and by the way, I will refer to man, plural, mankind. I'm not going to get into humankind or humankind or whatever the latest thing is. Um, you know, maybe I should ask you, Margaret Ann, what they're saying on campuses, um, you know, what the latest reference is. Uh, even humanity has man in it, so I know some people object to that. So I don't know what they're saying now. Uh, the, the mostly sentient race on earth, I, I don't know. You'll have to help me get the latest. But I will just, uh, for sake of uh, convenience and because there's nothing wrong with it, just refer to us as man or mankind at times. But, um, you know, uh, mankind was created to be God-centered, 
And I think that's the number one thing that we begin to see as we look at this question. We are to be God-centered. We were created for that. Our purpose is that. Unfortunately, that is not the case after the fall. After the fall, what happens when Adam sins against God? We become what? Self-centered, exactly. We become self-centered, and everything changes. And that brings up something that I think we need to look at. When we talk about worldviews, we can begin by looking at our own lives and looking at all the different things that make up who we are, the things that we value, the things that we find that are important. So, for example, you know, you have here at the center. Okay, so we're going to say we have God here in the center. And there's all sorts of things in our lives, right? There's work. And there is uh, uh, sex and family and all those things that come with that. And there's um, education, by which we mean how do we understand the world around us and study it and all that. There's uh, recreation, the things we do for fun or you know so on. I can throw up more things on here. Right, we could put uh, civics and how we relate to one another and, and, and government or community and so on. And all these things, all these things center around God, and that's the way God intended for these things to all happen. But when sin entered into the world, all that changed. And the self, the center, became the self. And now all these different things are operating with a wholly different thrust and focus. And this is where we all begin. And it's, of course, through the work of the Holy Spirit because of our salvation in Christ that we begin the process, the catechism will speak more about that, but we begin the process of reorienting our thinking back to this. But this is what God created us for, and unfortunately this is where we've ended up with sin. We've become so very self-centered, so very focused on ourselves. We no longer live to glorify God. We no longer uh, devote ourselves to submitting to his will uh, we want to submit to our own will, or we want to, our own will to dominate, and so on and so on. So we can all see that. Now, some of you might say, well, that's too simple a description. There are many, many people throughout history and people that I know who are not self-centered. No, they are people who live for, for others. Um, they are great patriots who serve the country. They're, there are great humanists. Uh, who serve humanity, you know, as a whole. Uh, there are uh, uh, those people who, like Spock and Jeremy Bentham, who seek the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Uh, I think that may actually be a motto or a line that I saw one time in the United Nations building. Um, so the problem with that is, What's, what's still, okay, so you've got your, your great patriot who serves the country, or you've got your humanist who serves the greater needs of humanity. What's, what's the problem still with those, those folks? Let me ask you this. What are they still not? Say again. Okay, so yeah, so if we want to put it in terms of this, they're still not God-centered. You might say, well, they're not self-centered as in some person who's avaricious or ambitious, you know, Hillary Clinton. I mean, um, um, sorry, I just started coughing. But, um, you know, people that are so obviously searching and, you know, advancing their own careers, their own uh, uh, glory and all that. No, no, these are people who have served others. These are people who serve a greater cause. But in the end, they're not God-centered. And can you see that ultimately, being man-centered is just as selfish? Because guess what we are? We're, we're men, again, human beings. And so when we serve our country, we're really serving ourselves. When we serve greater humanity, we're really serving ourselves. 
Now, am I saying that a person who gives his life to save another, you know, that it's wasted or that or that's selfish? In a, in a sense, you can see, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not knocking that this person was willing to make that sacrifice or something. But you, you're a police officer and you serve the community. And in a line of duty, you know, you throw yourself in front of a bullet, and no cops do that anymore. That's the old days. But before, when their motto used to be to protect and serve and not get home safely, they would do that, and you get shot, and you save somebody else. See, one person who knows, who works for the government, knows exactly what I just said. Um, ultimately, that does serve that person, because if we all lived in a community where people acted that way, it would be for our good, wouldn't it? It would be better to live in a community where people put others ahead of themselves. Now you're starting to think, wait a minute, Christians do that. And the scripture calls us in the second table of the law, because you're already ahead, you already know what, what, that's true. That is all true, and so it's not to take away from those aspects of being a a humanitarian or being a good patriot or so on. Those things, you know, do serve. And it is better to do that than to be just so self-centered that you just murder, rob, and steal just to get ahead and all this. But in the end, the driving force is still, it's good for me. If everybody in my community acted this way, it would be good for me. So you can see how it's ultimately, while it's better than being that obviously selfish, avaricious, ambitious person, it's still not God-centered. So that's just kind of setting the stage for the really the two different ways of life. You know, the last sermon I preached here before Dave Boxerman came in uh, and took over those duties, you might remember I left you with Psalm 1. Why? Why Psalm 1? Because Psalm 1 describes two different people, those who are God-centered and those who are man-centered. And, of course, the psalm particularly focuses on the destiny of those two different people, Uh, one who will be cared for and will in the end prosper and and flourish and the other which will be swept away like chaff just forgotten Uh, but the point is that this is really the world around us Uh, these are the two kinds of people those who are God-centered and those who are man-centered and the only way that you can be a God-centered person now after the fall is through Sunday school answer Jesus yeah so that sounds terribly arrogant to unbelievers. Uh, oh, you guys think you're the only one. And we have to be able to, in one sense, with humility, say yes. Not because we're better. We'll have to explain that again and again. We have to explain what grace is. We have to make sure we understand it. But we do have to start with that reasoning that you cannot be God-centered unless you have Christ. So, with that setting the stage for this very important question, let's, let's go on. So man's chief end is to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? What do you think when you hear that term? Does it mean to make God glorious? No? Why not? He's already glorious. There's nothing we can do to make him any more glorious than he is. Right? Right? So the term doesn't mean that. So what, if, if that's not what it means, what do you think it means to glorify God? Okay, so you're, you're speaking of, of an awareness, right, and exalting in our, in our estimation. Okay, I think there's a lot of truth in that answer. Anything else you might think of? Okay, so actually adoring and, and worshiping and, and exalting and acknowledging who he is. I think you guys are getting on to it. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1. Somebody read that verse. It's a familiar verse. If you get there and nobody else is reading Psalm 19.1, that means you're the first person to get there and God had foreordained before the foundation of the world that you should read it. Aha, thank you, John. The heavens declare the glory of God and this one said the sky above. 
Is that how it was translated? Shows his handiwork. I've got a slightly different translation here, but okay. So the heavens, the skies, they are alive and sentient or inanimate? Inanimate, right? And yet it says that they declare the glory of God. They show it forth. And so what we begin to see is that to glorify God is not so much that we make him glorious. As was said earlier, he's already perfectly glorious. There's nothing we can do that would make him more glorious. So what we're really doing is we're reflecting that glory. We're acknowledging that glory. We are, as you were saying in praise, we are exalting him in that glory. Uh, that is the key thing. And if the inanimate world can do it, then most certainly we can do it, right? But there's a difference, though, between the inanimate world and us, and it's very simply this. The heavens must of necessity declare the glory of God, but we're given the choice to do it. And when we look at it, every one of our choices that are, that are of moral consequence come down to this very thing. The very thing that led to the fall was a decision between glorify God or glorify self. Be God-centered, submit to God's will, trust that everything that he says is for our own good, or become man-centered, trust in my own uh, uh, ability to discern what's best. The tree looked good. The fruit looked good, right? But uh, like it was worth having. So it's, any, any, if you have kids, you know this is exactly what happens. Your kids hear what you say, and then they sit there and they say, thanks, Mom, thanks, Dad, for your advice, but I think I know better. I will choose what is better for me. And then they go off and they make a choice. And it breaks your heart. It's not that you're angry or anything, but you can see that what they're really doing is that they're harming themselves. Because the same sort of thing happens with us. And so every single decision that we make of a moral character comes down to this. Do we choose to be God-centered or do we choose to be man-centered? And so uh, the choice is a moral choice. God created mankind with that human agency of will that lets us pick between right and wrong. He wants people to be, you know, God could have waved the magic wand and forced us all to be worshipers. We would be robots, but then that would not be love. And God created a people whom he could love and who would reflect that love back to him voluntarily. Now, yeah, I know you're already thinking ahead. You just said voluntarily, and yet man has no free will. And uh, we'll correct all those notions later. We'll address them all. Man absolutely has free will. We have a whole chapter in the Confession of Faith that speaks about free will. Uh, we'll talk about how you can still be completely under God's submission, do every, uh, God's will. Uh, you can do everything that he wants you to do, everything that's how he can foreordain whatsoever comes to pass, and yet you still freely choose every last thing that you choose. You're never under compulsion, ever. So this is what God is looking for, people who will choose to glorify him. I just want to make sure we're on time here. So <clears throat> there are... <clears throat> There are, of course, people who, when confronted with this choice, openly and knowingly, will sit there and say, I don't want to glorify God. It's not of interest to me. Uh, I do not want to exalt God. But the catechism question is, uh, is still correct, because in the end, they will glorify God. If somebody will, turn to Romans 9, 21 through 23. Read Romans 9, 21 through 23. And if you get there and nobody else is reading, that means you have been selected to read it. Romans 9, 21, 20 through 23. So, is Paul just talking about pottery? 
<laughs> What's Paul discussing? Who's the potter? God, yes. And who are the vessels? Yep, humanity. And he says that he makes two different kind of vessels. Those two different kind of vessels are those who are destined for what? Uh, some, some for honor and for glory and others for destruction and for dishonor. Uh, and he's clearly saying there are some, uh, and, and this is the exact same chapter where he says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will harden whomever I desire to harden. So it's very clear that God has two groups of people, that those who have rebelled against him was not something that he was, you know, my, you know, dear me, what am I going to do now? You know, this was all part of God's plan because the interesting thing is those of us who are saved by the grace of God, not because we were better, faster, smarter, or wiser or anything, but those of us who have been saved glorify God. We've been designed, created, molded, shaped for honor. God's in the process of shaping and molding us even now towards that. It is a painful process of suffering, which is what Dave Boxerman is going through in the book of First Peter. Suffering is the primary means by which God molds us and shapes us as he gets those fingers into the clay and does that. But ultimately, it is for God's honor and so that we might glorify him. But the interesting thing is that those who reject him, God had designed them to also show not his mercy and his grace, but to show his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. And so they too glorify God. So that's the amazing thing. Man's chief end is to glorify God, whether you want to or not. The question is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. One group enjoys it. The other group does not. But all human beings will and do glorify God. It's very, very interesting. Again, once you begin to see things in this, you begin to look at the whole world differently. You begin to see those who what we might consider enemies of the church and so on. We begin to see them in different ways, hopefully with much more compassionate eyes to see that they're locked into this how do we break them out of that? Only through the gospel. Only as we have compassion on them. Only as we see that they're trying to make sense of the world around them but lack the tools and the ability to do so. That doesn't mean that they're just uh, 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 guiltless. No, they, they sometimes do terrible things, truly evil things that hurt you and me and those around us in the church and those whom we love. Uh, but this is where we begin to understand forgiveness and compassion and how we approach them in, in a way that is like that of Jesus. So anyway, uh, just for the sake of time, let's move on. But the point simply being that all human beings will glorify God. They'll either do it by choosing to be God-centered. We made that choice. Now again, uh, we were only able, ooh, I just used the word between choice and ability. Okay, we'll have to talk about that later. We're only able to choose God because of the work of the Holy Spirit through the salvation wrought by Christ. These folks are unable to do that. They are locked into that, um, and so on. All right, uh, let me just move on and say, when we talk about the chief end of man, what does that mean? What do you think does that mean? Let's unpack that, that one phrase a little bit. Ultimate purpose. Ultimate purpose, okay. So... The reason I say that is because it, it, it's very simple. You've heard me say this in other contexts. Um, but there are, are uh, well, let me just go back. I remember I was uh, serving as an interim pastor in a southern town, a New Yorker in a southern town. It was quite a thing. And, um, and we had the, uh, 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 well, we had this officer's meeting, and one of the guys pulled up. And it was the first time I'd ever lived anywhere, or I didn't actually live there. I would travel to it where I just noticed everybody drives trucks. And there's like trucks everywhere. So now I'm kind of used to it here because Texas is like the truck capital of the, the world, I believe. But um, I think there's more trucks sold in Texas alone than in the rest of the United States combined. And I don't think I'm, I'm that's not an exaggeration. I think that's actually true, uh, right? Somebody will, I'm sure, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, so this guy had a truck 
And he had on, on, the, on the back of it, you know, people put little things on the, on the windshield, uh, the rear uh, windshield. And it was something like God, uh, God family, country, uh, I can't remember, was it FSU or UF, University of Florida or Florida State University or something. What they really wanted to highlight was that number four. They wanted to sit there and say, I'm a Gator or I'm a Seminole or whatever it was. I don't remember what it was for that person. But to get there, you know, he had to say God and family and country and then, you know, New York Mets. Um, what's wrong with that thinking based on what you've been hearing and reading and studying? You just say, how can there be anything wrong with that? That person has the right priorities. Equal, but he said God was first. I think I know where you're going, but I, I'm, I'm pushing just for a little bit of exposition. He said God first, so not equal. It separates them. It separates them. I think that's what you mean by being equal. You got one thing you can do for God, one thing you can do for your country, one thing you can do for your family, one thing you can do for your favorite sports team or you know, whatever the case may be. Absolutely, that's exactly where we're going with that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and erase this if that's okay. So I know some of you have heard me say this in other contexts, so forgive me, I'm repeating myself, but I think it fits in well with what the catechism is driving at here. When we talk about chief end, as Scott said, ultimate purpose. And when we talk about an ultimate purpose, the trap is to sit there and say the most important purpose and the most important purpose for when I do these things, but there are other things that I can have, lesser purposes. And at first, that sounds like it really works. It sounds like that's quite normal. Um, But it's not what it really means. Ultimate purpose means that it is foundational. And being foundational, it affects everything in the structure. And there's a little difference there. It means it touches upon everything. So, you know, what I find with people who do the God country, you know, whatever kind of thing, is, as was properly pointed out, they end up being equal in the sense that you just have one thing and another thing. So, you know, let's put family. Family should get a pretty big piece of the pie. You know, I'll put work and country Recreation. Oh, recreation actually ends up with a pretty big piece. That's not what I intended. A triangle? How so? Like what? So you can have, you could have God. That's where we're headed. But I'm just saying, this is how we end up when we say God, family, country, you know, FSU or whatever. We end up giving each one their own slice. And so today I'm working on the God slice. I'm going to church, I'm being a good person, I'm fulfilling all those obligations, I'm checking those boxes. Oh, and now I'm going to take my son to the ball game. So notice I didn't say soccer because you love your son, so you wouldn't. Okay, sorry. John Terps was thinking, I'm going to have to bring charges against this man. Um, So you take your son to the ball game, you sit down to do, you know, a tea party with your daughter and all that other stuff. You're spending family time... You've now done that. Oh, now, you know, you've got to go do something for your boss. Or no, you've got to go do some civic duty. You volunteer at CCA or, you know, whatever. And so in each one of those, you compartmentalize. Like you said, you separate those. I knew a guy uh, at a church. I don't need to say where or when. It was a while ago, over 20 years ago. And uh, quite frankly, um, he, he was an officer in the church. He was a deacon. Seemed like a great guy. Um, would come. Uh, you guys know uh, just the wonderful skill that I have in, in uh, all sorts of handheld uh, uh, manual labor kind of things. So um, uh, he came often to help me in my home because I was useless on, on, the, on that front. And um, he was always there to help. So, you know, no complaints until I started learning from people in his work that when he went to work, foul mouth, bossed everybody around, did a... There were just two different worlds. It was like two different guys because he had that compartment and he had that compartment. So when we say man's chief end, we don't simply mean, you've got to rank them, folks. God's got to be your number one thing. 
But then you can have this, you can have that, and you can have that, and you can have that. And they're all separate categories. This is not a good model to have. The better model, the one that, as I said, most of you, if you've been here for a while and you've heard me say, is that we should treat it, and I think uh, this is where you're going with the triangle thing, but I kind of think of it more as a ring. And every one of these is like a strand that has to pass through. And there's your strand of family. And there's your strand of recreation. There's your strand of work. And there's your strand of, uh, uh, of country and civic duty and um, uh, even church and all that. But the point is that every strand has to pass through the ring of Christ so that every one of these things is informed. Every one of these things is affected. That's what brings you back to that being God-centered and all those things radiate out from there. So there's just different models for showing the same thing. But this, or the one that I previously had, is really the way we want to think. And that's what it means. Man's chief end, as Scott said, really is ultimate. It's foundational. And when you build on your foundation, everything is affected by that foundation. Every window, every brick, every, you know, all the different parts of the superstructure rest and are shaped and are affected by that foundation. And that is what we should be happening, should be happening to us when we look at all those different categories. So there's no compartmentalization. There's no, this is my work life and this is my church, my Christian life. By the way, culture, this is why we study the pagans, culture has been working really, really hard at least since World War II. Uh, actually, I think it goes back as early as the 1880s and starts making an appearance uh, post-World War I but it really doesn't kick off until World War II with this idea of your beliefs are private. Your beliefs are something you keep in your head. And, and you hear politicians and so on actually saying this. You can believe whatever you want. Just keep it in your head, not out here in the public sphere. And they've presented a fiction, and it is a fiction, that there's this neutral area out here. So you can walk around, and in your heads, you're all carrying all sorts of, you know, you might be a Hindu, you might be a, uh, an Orthodox Christian, you might be a, a now now witch, you might be a secular humanist, you know, Carl Sagan type, you know, whatever. None of that matters because out here in the neutral civil sphere, we can all act in a certain way. Now, that's nonsense. It's nonsense because there is no neutral civil sphere. Right? Uh, uh, I remember years ago, uh, I was sitting in a coffee shop wearing uh, the pastor's collar, and, and in comes this, this young man. And again, some of you have heard the story, so forgive me for um, repeating it. But he comes in, he wants to talk to me. And, you know, sometimes people see the collar and they just, they just want to talk. And he starts by telling me that he lives in California now. And he's like this, oh, you know, I'm in California. And I don't know, it was like an affected kind of thing. Chelsea, you lived out there. I, I don't, I, we lived out there, it's been years. I don't remember people actually walking around, except the movies, you know, where they... Uh, portray what California, they think California should be like, you know. Say again? Some of the beach bones. Yeah, may, certainly some of the people in San Francisco, those who are, you know, okay, I'm going to stop there. But for the most part, I think this guy had a certain affectation. But his whole thing was, I used to live in California, but I grew up here in Flower Mountain, and I'm coming back to visit my parents. And, you know, my parents basically said how, how limited they were, how short-sighted, they, 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 they don't have the vision, the ability to... That. Now, he's telling me all this. I'm here just drinking coffee. I didn't ask him any of the questions. You know what that tells you, right? Because he wants to talk. He has the ability to see spiritual matters, and he's trying to justify his view. Because if I sat there and said, Dominus Onus, my son, you're all good, off you go, he'd be like, yes, it is all right. So deep down inside, he knows he's messing some stuff up. But he's going on, and he's telling me, how, you know, all the people here are so short-sighted with their religion and whatever, but he's discovered, you know, freedom and all that other stuff in California and all that. And, and he was arguing eventually this very same thing, that there is a public sphere of neutrality where we just know how to do certain things, right? You're supposed to not hurt people. And I was asking him why, because he was literally giving me the whole truth is relative kind of thing, and you, you design your own truth. So I told him, how about if I just want to grab you right now by the face and just slam you into the table and just, no, that would be bad. But why would it be bad? 
How about if that works for me? And according to blah, 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 you know. But you, see, that's the fiction that has been put out there, is that there's this neutral realm, and there's these good things that we all know to do, but why do we know to do them? You see, that's kind of skipped over. But you have to keep your particular Christian views locked into your head. And a lot of Christians have begun to buy into that uh, without even realizing it. But this tells us that's not the case at all. This tells us that your worldview affects everything, whether it is a God-centered or a man-centered worldview. And we can't keep our thoughts inside our head. And we have to talk to people and say, the reason that I'm not going to dress up as a woman or claim that I am is not just simply because that was my political choice, because I'm a red stater or whatever, but because God in heaven has said that this is what humanity is. And he made men this way, he made women this way, and he gave certain characteristics and behavior because God said that, and I submit to that. And the reason I don't want to marry Fred is because God said this is what marriage is to be and this is what sex is supposed to be. And the reason that I want to teach my son in homeschool is, uh, I'm not knocking home public school, that's not where I was going to go with this, but there's certain values I want to teach him not because I just chose them and they're in my head and I want them to be in his head, but because God has it. So that's where we need to be. This catechism question begins to set the stage for us to be able to do that. Okay? I'm going to stop there. There's a lot more that we can say. Uh, but that's the importance of what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we didn't even get into the enjoying him part. But when we go into worship, I'll just simply end by saying not just worship, but in the whole of our lives, God made us for him. He is our greatest good. He is that for which we long for. You know, C.S. Lewis does such a good job always talking about this. He talks about every other desire, every other desire on the planet. In the end, every, he calls them joy. Every, one of those little joys leaves you in the end empty. They're all pointing to the ultimate joy, which is to be found in him. There's a German word, some of you may know it's called sensucht. Ever heard of that word? John, you're a Dutchman. I bet you there's a very similar Dutch word somewhere. I didn't, I didn't quite hear it. Uh, let me write it out. Let's see if this helps. But sensucht. It's one of those untranslatable German words. <laughs> but it, it means a desire, a longing, a, a nostalgia. In fact, C.S. Lewis often uses the word nostalgia here. You wake up and you, you remember what, when you were five years old, and assuming you had a good home like I did, I know some people don't have that, the blessing of a home where they're loved and so on, and you, and you long for that day in which you were carefree and completely uh, provided for, and you knew that you were loved unconditionally. And, 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 and we're searching all for that kind of, that, that longing and desire that exists in man. And the German word sensucht is supposed to capture that. That's because deep inside, we were created for God. We, were made in, we are made in his image. The fall has marred but not completely erased that, and we long for it. And so we plug in all these other things. And the book of Ecclesiastes goes right through them all. Work, sex, uh, riches, and possessions, and wealth. And, well, they satisfy, but not enough. So on, so on. That quest for satisfaction, that desire for significance that we all have, can only be met by God. And once your life becomes truly God-centered, then you begin to finally, all the... All things connect. That longing is fulfilled, and you begin to enjoy not just your life, but you begin to enjoy him because he's the one who answers it. And that's why I often will say when we're at the Lord's Supper that Jesus is not just the one who gives us the good things. Jesus is the prize. He gives us himself, and that is enough. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's close with prayer. And, uh, oh, question, John. Comment. I'm sorry? I'm not, aware. not aware. Okay. Well, now we got the homework assignment to see if we can track down some uh, equivalent. But uh, yeah, in English, there's no actual translation, direct translation. We've got to come up with all these things longing, desire, uh, uh, nostalgia, that kind of thing. Uh, there's handouts up here from kind of what you talked about last week. 
Oh, great. Okay. So um, I'll put them up here and we can grab them. So uh, thank you for that. And these are what now? Oh, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this is not, this is not just in general, but uh, so yeah, this is the origin formation of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's talking about the, fa- the confession, but it applies to all of them. We were l- doing that um, historical overview last week of how it came about and the English Reformation and uh, the Long Parliament and all that in the 1640s. So yes, uh, Scott, track these down and they are here. Please be sure to pick one up. Do we have any last minute questions, things about this or comments, thoughts? I should have asked that earlier. Nope, you're all ready to move on. Okay. Next week we will do chapter two because, I'm sorry, a question two. You wonder how do I glorify, glorify God and enjoy him forever? And the first part, the catechism is actually broken into parts that logically flow. The first part will begin to answer the how we do this. So we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you created us for yourself and that you created us with the ability to connect, to be in fellowship, to be in union with you and to find our greatest good and all our needs met in you. Father, we ourselves are the ones responsible for having uh, cast this world into a completely different complexion, centering in ourselves, thinking ourselves uh, better, ultimately better than anything that you gave to us. And look what it has gotten us. Uh, We pray, Father, that as you have now in your grace through Jesus brought us back increasingly to being God-centered, we pray that we would understand what it is that you are doing for us, that we would also better understand why our neighbors and our family members and co-workers act the way they do, especially when they do not follow you uh, or follow you in ways that are uh, really still self-centered and man-centered. And we pray, Lord, that you would develop in us us uh, compassionate uh, hearts that understand. Um, You would give us the steel to stand up and uh, affirm what is true and what you yourself have revealed in your word. And that we would uh, develop a thoroughgoing uh, biblical worldview that would shape every aspect of our lives so that we can better love you and better serve those around us. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.